Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Momenta Edge podcast series. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. And today, our guest is Mike Dolbeck, who is Executive Managing Director for GE Ventures. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, Mike's got a really interesting background and has his uh, has his hands in, in in a lot of a lot of fascinating areas. So we're looking forward to to diving into that. Uh, so anyway, uh, first of all, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. It's thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Uh, I'd like to start off first with a bit of a bit of your background and and just a just a it could provide a bit of color and context in in terms of uh, you know your uh, provide your experiences and 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 what have really shaped how you view connected industry or IoT whatever we wh- whatever we want to call it today. Okay, sure. Uh, I, I'd say that. I'm a beneficiary of the very strong vision that GE's had uh, for the industrial Internet. Uh, I joined GE and what became GE Ventures five years ago. And, of course, they there's a this strong history of what uh, a world that always works, uh, to borrow a phrase from Uptake, um, could be if you uh, – used all the data wisely that was available and attacked one of the most expensive problems for asset operators, which is downtime. So they they kind of started with that vision and then imagined all of the solutions and and software that would have to be in place to pull that off. Uh, And I guess I was one of the people that convinced them that they could move even faster if they opened themselves up to the innovation economy that's so heavily based here in Silicon Valley, but also distributed around the world. Um, Notwithstanding that, there's also the first 24 years of my investing career where I've been connecting stuff. Um, You know, I was involved in the internet uh, wave of um, investments and then mobility, uh, kind of throughout that, the various waves of AI investment. And then I was fascinated by the potential for IoT. So when I had the join, the chance to join GE, it was a chance to put it all together. Uh, now, is your your background is uh, is in is in finance, or or you know, what really has led you to to focus on on tech and and some of the growthier technologies in, in Silicon Valley? Well, my academic background is in computer science. I've, uh, I think I got the first master's degree in AI from Stanford. Uh, there's two of us in the program, but because my name came first, I was first in line. So, you know, uh, I win. Um, and it was just uh, that was back before the last AI winter when expert systems were all the rage. Uh, but I worked, I was working at Xerox Park uh, during my graduate degree, uh, finishing it up at Stanford. And then I, I entered industry first in the uh, what was the very first laptop computer company, Grid Systems, back in 1981. And so I've, <clears throat> I've been an engineer or a computer scientist um, 
then a business development person, then in sales, marketing, product management, pretty much everything with manufacturing, uh, if, I, if I look back at it. And I was always fascinated by how these companies could turn straw into gold. Um, sounds like somebody's having a good time there in the background. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was uh, not well, to, to, uh, interestingly. Today is the day that we're uh, um, that uh, IBM announced the or the day after the IBM announced the acquisition of Red Hat. So uh, might might have been a stray Red Hat shareholder. Oh, okay. Uh, definitely, they're happy. They they received a great premium. Oh, uh, that no, it, it's um, no, it's. Uh, you know, quite interesting times, and and the uh, uh, the the, well, the 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 background and the context, though, that kind of brings us to, to where we are today, is 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 super interesting. I mean, it, 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 along the way, what you know, what were some of the uh, formative uh, experiences that really shaped your view of, of of the world? I mean, that having lived through the AI winter, as it were, I mean, I think that. Uh, you know that that certainly opened up a lot of people's eyes to, you know, not just uh, the you know what ultimately would be the potential of of uh, artificial intelligence, be- you know, before the winter, but also the uh, you know the the phenomenon of, of technologies that that tend to be oversold or or overhyped. I mean, as, uh, you know, along the way, are, are are there some are there some lessons or experiences that you know that that you would consider you know formative? Uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, having been part of what caused the AI winter, so I was in sales. I was selling expert systems to the financial services industry. Uh, I distinctly remember the last, maybe the only time I've been at the restaurant Windows on the World on top of the former World Trade Center was when I was pitching a room full of insurance executives about expert systems and how they could um, semi-automate or increase the productivity in, in uh, underwriting risks. Um, and I, I think that what you appreciate if you've gone through that is, you know, definitely the hype cycle and how that you can get ahead of yourself and how you can create expectations that you can't deliver on. And if you really can't afford to do that, if you're a Silicon Valley company, you can't afford to to semaphore in advance an entire industry to become suspicious of you. you I think uh, we all learn to be more humble after that. There was a great backlash against the promise of expert systems, and it took quite a long time, right, before the tremendous amount of data that became available and um, cheap compute power uh, to make uh, what we call deep learning now possible. You know, it's been an idea that's been around in research for quite a long time, but it, it only became uh, powerful and practical and easy to demonstrate um, recently. Uh, and so I think don't avoid the next AI winter. Don't overhype this is something that is constantly in the back of my mind. I would say that I'm and frankly, journalists are at fault here because um, they tend to write stories that are you know, sensational headlines with a lot of maybes and could be's and might happens. And usually they don't, or they mix, they confuse the words AI with some value proposition. And maybe if they just, Mm -hmm. if they wrote the story as software did this or software did that, it wouldn't be as interesting. 
and, and salacious, but it would probably be, you know, more true. Um, so I, I worry about that. I worry about the tech press. Um, and I, there's a, there's a community of people who've been through it before. Roger Shank is my favorite debunker. Um, he goes after Elon Musk quite a bit, but you know, I, I think we need to be very careful, um, and, and pull back to, uh, AI techniques. Some of them are very powerful. Uh, some of them are very brittle. Uh, and it's important to understand how to be effectively a, a good product manager, how to know when you have situations, when you can apply these techniques. When is it worth it to exert that effort? And when will you make a return that exceeds the, you know, enterprise effort to put it out there in the first place? You know, I think a lot of people are rushing blindly out to things and they surprise themselves sometimes. It's more difficult than they think. So when you look back at some of your uh, your experiences and uh, with with AI or machine learning as you hear it, could you talk about some of the you know some of the initial visions that uh, may have been disappointing or difficult to realize early on that that are now being realized effectively, and some of the misperceptions uh, that that may that that may persist today about, about AI. And I, I think it's certainly appropriate to tie in some of the, uh, some of the fear, uncertainty and doubt that's, uh, that's getting bandied about, about, uh, artificial intelligence and, and, you know, what it could, what it could mean down the road for, for society, et cetera. Gee, I, I would, that sounds like a long conversation we could have over a drink or two. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm entirely qualified to, opine um, precisely about that. So I can give you some personal opinions, but you know, your mileage may vary, as they say. Um, I, I guess the question I'd like to answer, if I interpret your question correctly, is when, you know, AI works when, question mark. Um, and as I see it, um, the way that there are really two schools of thought from, you know, when the the term and the kind of formal field AI was coined at Dartmouth in 56, you know, three years before I was born. Thank you very much. Um, the two schools grew up to be um, AI could automate uh, some form of human thinking and process. <clears throat> so AI could replace people sometimes for certain things. That was one school of thought. And the other school of thought was more humanistic. AI should is best when it's deployed to augment people, uh, not necessarily replace them, but to make them more productive or enable them to do either things they had not been able to do before or make them much more productive. And I think in a gross way, without having to pin myself down too specifically, I think it, it definitely works best when it augments and enhances uh, the capabilities that uh, enterprise employees are capable of. I'm, I'm going to stay away from consumer for a second. Uh, it's we're nowhere near um, understanding how intelligence works generally to replace people uh, very well, uh, except in very certain super narrow tasks. And I, I think there are a lot of problems with that anyway, uh, but I prefer to think that we've been increasingly successful at thinking of ways to make 
the chains of decisions that enterprises have to make to get their work done, make those more efficient or more productive. Um, from, I don't know, smart forms of robotic process automation that handle basic workflows. The, the tough part about workflows is when things don't go perfect. When they go according to plan, the workflow that somebody wrote down all works and step A goes to step B and so forth. It's the exceptions that need to be handled that are always tricky and you can't anticipate all possible situations. I think we're becoming increasingly uh, adapted to providing wise alternatives when exceptions come up that are not easy to handle. Um, on up to some of my companies help uh, some of the largest companies on earth, some of my investments, uh, make better decisions, more optimal decisions in a fixed amount of time, given the enormous amount of data that uh, they have access to. So they basically let them sift through uh, a larger amount of options and play the chess game out further uh, and pick the best outcome from that set than they normally be able to do under their own power. And so I think those forms of augment human decision-making, augment human uh, capabilities to achieve an outcome uh, are working and uh, seem to be picking up speed in, in some fields. Yeah, no question. Um, the application of AI in, in almost every industry, of course, is uh, you know, it's really starting to have some, uh, at least a, you know, a lot of dramatic attention being paid to no doubt. potential, no doubt. Um, but would love to get, a, get your your perspective as you know going back to your your initial work in the technology industry and and what ultimately led you to to focus on investing and you know some of the uh, if you could share just you know some some of the principles or or, or lessons that you've learned a, along the way in and and tell us a, a bit about the you know the really the type of investing uh, the stage that you you know that you focused on. Well, I entered investing quite a long time ago, so I'm not sure how relevant uh, this experience is for someone in this decade. So again, it's situational. Um, my own experience, I had, um, I was in graduate school and I was doing research at a very exciting lab called Xerox Park. Um, I was part of the team that was developing uh, the small talk language and user interface, uh, many of those ideas wound up in the Mac and in Windows. Um, in fact, I remember the team from Apple visiting, and I was recruited by a manager that I worked for that had left uh, Park to go to Microsoft. Um, and uh, so, you know, I have a lot of connections to the, the way the personal computer history uh, played out. Um, so being in that environment was seductive, frankly, because it was almost as if there was nothing that you couldn't achieve as long as you could uh, create a firm enough vision about which direction to go. Um, so I worked for Alan Kay at Park, who was responsible. I think his, his PhD thesis kind of became the foundation for uh, laptop computers and later the iPad. It was this amazing device, amazing to think about in the early 80s when, you know, computers weren't portable. They were 
kind of big book bookshelves in an air conditioned room. But, you know, he could play it out and see the progression and see how it could become very useful in the hands of a, a normal computer. I mean, a consumer uh, or, or especially a child. I think child psychology really was fascinating to him. Um, and being at Park, uh, I watched this tremendous the diaspora is probably the wrong word because that has a negative connotation. There was a, a flowering of innovation. It's kind of like Athens. And then people would leave and go found other companies. You know, the Ethernet uh, world was spun out of Park. Uh, the, the Mac, as I said, came out of Park. The, all the ideas about multiple overlapping windows. In some sense, our work, the laptop, the clamshell, the way that your computer opens up, uh, the screen from the keyboard uh, was a patent from the first startup I worked at after Park called Grid. Um, all these ideas were people were just making them up on the fly in order to complete a product and bring it to market. And being in that environment, watching um, watching the stack, as it were, you know, we we transitioned from a world where IBM did everything; they did the hardware and everything up, up above it to a Silicon Valley-based industry where people figured out, okay, I am this layer in the stack. I stand on the shoulders of the people below me, and I build something, and then I uh, sell it to the um, uh, people above me. And together, we all create this valuable proposition, but we're probably not doing it completely by ourselves. Um, that was a fascinating transition. So I went through, from Park, I went through a series of startups as an engineer and then a product manager and uh, but I eventually I felt like I'd hit a glass ceiling. Uh, I, I was typecast as an engineer and uh, I apparently had no business judgment, even though I had strong ideas. I had uh, worked for Mayfield doing diligence. Uh, one of my fraternity brothers was a partner at Mayfield, and um, I guess when I called me in to, to meet with companies together with them and then asked me what I thought afterwards, I must have said something right because they kept inviting me back. Um, so anyway, I had this idea that if I went to business school, I could homogenize myself, get my head stamped as, you know, a, a well-rounded person, not just an engineer. Uh, and that was my strategy. It wasn't to learn business. It was to be considered a different type of person with a broader perspective. And at that time, in the uh, mid-'80s, I guess it was, it worked. Um, and during the time I was in business school, friends of mine had uh, left their companies and started other companies, received backing from venture firms. And so uh, I decided not to go into investment banking, which I easily could have done from business school. I wanted to return desperately to Silicon Valley. And so I networked with my friends, uh, these entrepreneurs, and to some extent, their investors. Uh, and then I kind of accidentally got a job at Kleiner Perkins as an associate um, because they, I guess my name came up at somebody's board meeting and uh, then they forgot which business school I was at and then they couldn't find me and then they gave up. And then somebody told me about that and I called them up and they said, hey, yeah, when can you come to Palo Alto to meet us? And I said, how about 15 minutes? I'm, I'm just down the street right now. So that's how it started. Oh, that's that's pretty fortuitous. And of course, you having been right in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of exposure to the culture and 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 a lot of the players and 
uh, this, you know, certainly, you know, being able to see see the, you know, the the decision process, of course, is must uh, is hugely hugely valuable. Are, now, are there, you know, uh, some you know common themes in 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 your view as we kind of bring this back to you know connected industry, uh, you know, whether there are uh, unappreciated. Uh, technological enablers or uh, a market that's maybe unaddressed or, um, you know, what, what, what to you is the, you know, is, is a profile for say an appealing investment in, uh, in infrastructure versus, you know, app, you know, a broader application versus, uh, uh, versus a vertical application. I realize this sort of is fairly broad, but I, I do want to tie it back to, you know, your perspective on, on connected industry and then, and, t- and then, uh, and then tie that into some of the, some of the work that you're doing right now. That's an interesting question, Ed, because uh, for the most part, my responsibility here at Ventures is much more on, you know, I'm definitely in charge of infrastructure investments, and I uh, kibitz and partner on vertical applications because I've got that experience. But um, I would say that, remember I said I'd, I'd been an investor, professional investor, during several distinct waves of innovation here in Silicon Valley. So the uh, what I meant by internet was first it was well personal computing, which sounds ancient, but it was special back then. Then data networking, so the, the rise of Cisco and 3Com and you know all the other competitors there. Um, so first endpoints, then connect the endpoints in a large, generally private network. Then the, um, and over in the background, the internet started to grow up and then everybody needed to connect their things and take advantage of services that were there. So service-based computing. Um, so I, I've seen layer upon layer of sediment build up into what, what is now a much more mature um, bag of services available to anybody who can connect to the internet than before. Um, so it feels to me, connected industries, if you want to call it that, um, I, we've all seen this movie before. If you if you go back and look at the way that the data networking world has evolved, um, you can start to see some or anticipate some things that will play out um, all over again. First of all, I'll have to qualify this and say I'm very active in the industrial Internet world, the Internet 4.0 world, and uh, not active at all, uh, if I can, if I can make that statement, hardly at all on the consumer-based side. So, so my purview is skewed in that respect. But I think that connecting things is super important, and we take it for granted. Uh, but it, it it's uh, much less standardized uh, in the industrial world. Uh, and so that makes it awkward and hard and slow to scale, but I think those also represent opportunities. So um, you can connect things, barely, but it doesn't scale very well. Um, you can, so one of the issues is management of devices. You know, how do I know what's connected to me? And uh, there isn't 
an equivalent of about 20, 30 years ago, the network equipment industry was forced by its customers uh, to create a standardized way for devices to respond to the request, who are you and how are you configured and what version of which software is in you so that network management became possible. Uh, and for reasons I can only guess, that really has never happened in the industrial world. So there's there's no standard SNMP-like command that says, what kind of PLC are you? Or what kind of edge gateway are you? And how is your, you know, where are the blue wires? What version of which firmware and which card is in there? Uh, and so I, I don't think that we'll get there very soon, but I think I always remind the customers that they may want to lean on their vendors a little bit. So device management today is pretty crude. It's like you're lucky if you know what stuff's connected to your network, um, at least maybe out to the edge gateways. And I think it can always get better. Uh, and the, the way that the, it evolved and through evangelism in the data networking world is um, you know, an important aspect. I'm not saying that's the only place for innovation, but that's just one of those movies I've seen before that hasn't quite happened yet in this world. Um, there's, you know, layer upon layer of security issues that that happen. <clears throat> it's it's worse in the industrial world because the devices, the endpoints, weren't ever designed with nefarious um, attackers in mind. It was always a sort of very trusted environment, and so they're more than exposed. They're kind of hardly protected at all, and I think that's always been an opportunity there. So you know, wide variety of companies that are trying to work through those issues of detection of intrusion. Um, that's been the first wave of companies. Uh, okay, what do I do if I know I've been compromised? How do I, what recipe do I go through to, um, you know, safely control what I think might be a problem until I know what's going on? Um, there's some special issues associated with that because sometimes if you, if you, you can't just isolate certain industrial equipment because it just gives up. Um, that's another design flaw perhaps is that if it, in some cases, if the equipment doesn't get contacted very often, it, it goes off track pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, so the standard procedure of isolating part of the network may not always be recommended and make things worse in some cases. Um, how, how horizontal uh, can technologies like security get? I mean, I think you you alluded to this aspect of industrial technologies that there's there really is no hom homogeneity of, of communications protocols. And certainly if you look at the Internet of Things, it, in many respects, it's really an, an Internet of, of Internets, right, or an Internet of Vertical yeah. networks and and you know as you know as you look at, at certain technologies or there um you know how do you go about thinking what uh you know how how horizontal or how applicable a certain tech set of infrastructure technologies and i think we're you know we'll we'll, we'll focus on infrastructure technologies for now how, you know how how horizontal can they get or are we do you expect this you know the that that what we call industrial IoT will continue to remain, you know, somewhat uh, distinct in terms of the the sets of technologies and uh, and protocols that that get used across different industries. Boy, that's a 
That's a very broad question. Can we, <laughs> can we narrow that down? Absolutely. An example or something? Because sure. Well, I, I mean, if you if, if you think about um, you know certainly, but build if you if you look at you know the technologies and set of technologies for building automation, of course, and uh, and, and 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 process automation. Uh, for for or, or manufacturing, say discrete manufacturing, and you'll have a facility where you have uh, you know b- building. You want to have intelligence uh, around the building, around the uh, around all the conditions in the building. Certainly, per, you know some some level of uh, you know physical perimeter security versus um, you know QA and uh, you know control. Is certainly within the, the facilities that will, for instance, um, you know, be able to protect against uh, you know cyber intrusions, but but then also uh, tie together, you know, for instance, uh, uh, you know, physical conditions with the uh, the actual performance of, of of machinery and and physical assets and, and output. Um, those would seem to be. You know, different domains, uh, the management of, of the physical facility and the management of, of say, manufacturing equipment. Uh, but in, in many, you know, in many regards, they're, they, they, are, they tend to be viewed as, uh, you know, still as, as, as very much siloed or, or discrete opportunities. And are, 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 there, are there technologies that are able to, you know, to think more holistically, uh, as it were? Okay. So I wish I had a whiteboard, but remember, I'm an investor. So I look at this in through a lens of if you were a company, would this be a good space to participate in? Could you make money? So the, the, the question I, I'm going to rephrase your question to if you think about a stack in the vertical sense where stuff to be endpoints and things to be connected are at the bottom, and then there's a multiple layers of protocols and connectivity built up from there. Um, the question is, and, and you could be, you could establish a company at any layer um, or, or, or maybe how much of the stack you could, you could stand. I think the way that I, I and I'll go back because I agree with it. One of the analogies that you use that, that, the industrial IoT or IoT in general is currently it's a market of verticals. There is no one IoT. Uh, it's awfully very use, often very use case specific. And and as an investor, then I'm qualifying this. I would say that it's it's really hard for a small company to participate in the lower parts of the stack, close to the protocols and and networking gear and and so forth. Uh, because it's tough to scale your business in a situation where there are so many highly fragmented use cases. Um, it'd be great if everybody used the same protocol in one sense, because you could, if you were efficient at creating that, you could scale a business. Um, <clears throat> but because they don't, you you often get into this tail chasing exercise of, well, more than half my revenue comes from professional services and I can't scale that like I can a product business. So if I were to answer the question, when, as you rise up that stack towards, um, you know, the whole idea usually behind connecting stuff is to get the data from where it's sensed to someplace else. But as you rise up that stack, when is it homogenous enough 
that you could create a viable business, at least a small one, and have a hope of scaling it beyond. Uh, and so I think it's very challenging, as I said, for a startup to be at those lower layers. And uh, so most of my investing has started in the sense of where in the stack have I invested? It doesn't, uh, it kind of starts after the data gets transmitted to some place that's homogenous, if you will. Mm. Um, so we're very active in um, edge, enabling edge computing. So the, the software stack that goes into an edge gateway that enables collection of data and analytic analysis of the data a local historian sometimes um, on up to doing some machine learning and then uh, transmitting the important results, but not all the data further upstream, maybe to other edge gateways or onto the cloud. So at some point in this vertical stack drawing that I would, if you could see it, I'm drawing on a whiteboard. Um, it becomes, I think, safer for a startup um, to establish a business because then you, there's enough, by the time you get the data, I mean, there's still a lot of problems, but it's it's not one of protocol and uh, completely incoherent stuff. It's, it's just a matter of a lot of messy data that you have to organize. I think that's where I've got several investments. Um, data integration is the kind of seminal problem of our world right now. Um, Getting the data, the smart companies, I'm going to say something controversial, but I think the smart startups um, let somebody else do the heavy lifting of connecting and moving the data to some place where they can start monetizing it. Uh, if you, you can really, it's really dangerous and, and a bit of a trap if you are also the person that has to handle all the connectivity problems. It, it so far is, it hasn't been sustainable for really small businesses, yeah. I don't think. Now, that's a really interesting insight. And I think if you look at, you know, certainly the rise of the, you know, the cloud service providers, like, uh, you know, obviously Amazon and Azure and, and Google, I mean, they they provide this, you know, this piping and infrastructure that's uh, really provides a running head start for somebody with a, a really good idea to, you know, to be able to realize, you know, to, to you know, to at least a you know, MVP of a, uh, a, or a prototype of, a, of an initial concept. Um, so that, and that was some, uh, you know, a great, um, a great insight, Mike, and I'd like to pull it forward to some of the work that you're doing now. I mean, you you know, working working with GE and and being focused a lot in on the industrial space. You know, where do you see some of the most attractive opportunities for you know for startups you know, working in uh, in industrial IoT, as it were? And you know, that's okay. Whether it's technology or 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 in the verticals, would love to get your insights. Okay, so here's my here's my speech about that because I've been saying this a couple of times. Uh, first, here's a retrospective, right? I've been at GE for five years. There's there's obviously a lot going on, but uh, with GE, but there's a super strong vision that's driven it all. And and I think in hindsight, I'd make three points before I answer your question. One is that when we look back, uh, it's gonna it's clear that that GE's really unchained the industrial world from its um, electromechanical 
mindset of the past. Uh, that's point one. And I, I think also because they framed this very simple to relate to concept, uh, you know, the power of a 1% improvement in operational efficiency, um, what would that worth to a major asset operating company? Uh, it's it's worth millions of dollars if you if you pick the correct operational situation. That, that also, I think, inspired a lot of people to go, "Holy cow, we could do this. We have these situations at hand, and we have the data, or at least we could get it after we connect and move it someplace." Um, and then I'd say there were all these concepts that that they really made um, in my mind. Uh, they demonstrated the value of them. Things like Digital twins, which these days is a, another overhyped term. It means almost everything you want. Um, but the concept of digital twins, uh, remote diagnostics of uh, you know predictive models detecting early warning signals. Um, my favorite, the sort of augmented uh, strategic decision making using AI. Uh, these are green, game changing concepts. I think about running operations and enterprises, and and that's. The sort of wake-up call that the, the digital inspired me to go make happen, make that future happen faster. Um, it, back to your question, what companies do I see that um, that excite me? Uh, I think I'm I'm got to be one of the most active edge computing investors, unless you you know stretch the definition quite a bit. <clears throat> so we. When I was a, throughout my you know very long career at GE, all five years of it, um, it, what really surprised me was first they had this fantastic idea for edge computing, which they only later asked customers about. And I think that what they found was it was way more seductive and popular with customers than they expected. Uh, customers almost effectively said, Oh, is is that my uh, my data and my computing in that box over there? And you mean I don't have to ship it off to the cloud, whatever that is, someplace where I can't control it, and I can put this box in a locked closet or someplace I can control. And if things really get out of hand, I can pull the plug. I like that. I want to start there. I don't want to start with this sort of. You know, it's scary that whatever the cloud is, I, I, I'm not sure I want to send my data off my premises to someplace else. And so that really accelerated our interest in fleshing out what that idea was and all the problems and challenges associated with it. How do you provision 100,000 things at once? You, know, you can't go to the Apple store with 100,000 edge gateways. And the genius bar isn't going to help you. Um, so how do you, what's, what's the zero touch provisioning? like in a world like that? How do you manage hundreds of thousands or a million devices? Um, how do you know they're all running the correct version? of? How do you update them uh, once they're out there? And so all these issues uh, that aren't a big deal when you have one or two of something, issues of scale become uh, things of interest. I'd say that the, so I'm, I'm very active in the problems and challenges that edge computing creates that, that could be solved. Uh, we've got investments in the, the ones that come to mind that are relevant are Iodium and Foghorn and Resin.io, which I think a new name is Bolina. 
um, each of these are involved in the uh, provisioning and running of analytics and then the incremental updating of the firmware over time. Uh, there's a steady wave of people realizing you can do pushing more and more computing out of the cloud out to where the data is so you don't have to pay the cost to move the data to the cloud and pay the cost of storing it there and pay the, the uh, uh, compute cost to process it. So there's dramatic cost efficiencies once you're talking about gigabytes and terabytes and petabytes of data. Um, and also, there are quite a few AI silicon companies that are generally their their uh, experience at exploiting image interpretation is something that I know my edge computing companies and others are exploiting. So uh, things that, in order for it to be cost effective or to happen fast enough, really can't wait until things. You can't ship all the video to the cloud, then ask it how it's doing, and then wait to come back. And I guess the classic example people can relate to is, you know, should the car swerve and avoid the person in the crosswalk? Do you have the round trip time to get to the cloud and then get back again before you have to make that decision? Well, there are similar situations in industrial operation of industrial assets where it's critical Something really bad kinetically could happen if you don't identify um, things early and, and take control and take action. So the use of AI silicon, usually deep learning silicon, out at the edge for inference, um, I think is an increasingly attractive opportunity for us. We have a, another investment called Avitas, which is a inspection as a service company. They they use flying drones and swimming robots and drones with sticky feet to crawl up uh, wind turbines, all in the service of collecting imagery that uh, can be later interpreted. Usually, uh, they're looking for corrosion. It's kind of a common enemy of industrial stuff, particularly when it's outside. Um, and so it's, it's, it basically boils down to a you know, we're not looking for cats. We're not recognizing faces, but we are recognizing uh, corrosion as it progresses over time. And if it starts to increase rapidly uh, in the same place, um, we can warn a customer and, and create a maintenance plan for them. And it, it saves a lot of money, but also it's a, it saves lives. It turns out that some of these inspections are very dangerous um, for people to... Um, to prosecute, and so it's a safety issue more than anything else. Um, so it's it's kind of um, edge computing. I guess the Venn diagram looks like edge computing, um, machine learning interpretation. I, the other part of the Venn diagram that doesn't really overlap is this other thing that's fascinating me. It's the human augmentation with machine learning and deep learning. Now, how do you take a uh, – there are a lot of global enterprises that have teams of people that make very high-class, expensive decisions on a repetitive basis, but without enough time. You know, they don't have a year. They have a week. They have to figure out what's the best way to avoid a really expensive problem or to spend $100 million to achieve some outcome. Um, and helping them be more productive – 
uh, turns out to be very lucrative if you can pull that off. And so one of my companies, Mana, uh, has uh, done a tremendous job, mostly for the oil and gas business, because if you're an oil and gas company, you're, you're like a small country in terms of your logistics opportunities and decisions you have to make. You've got a lot of gear that's really expensive to operate. It's either out at sea or it's floating or it's uh, in the ground. Um, you know, you're extracting petroleum and moving it someplace else and splitting it up into more expensive. You're monetizing it into different uh, levels and then you have to ship that off to consumers elsewhere. So it's uh, a lot of money at stake and a big and a traveling salesman problem to be optimized. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of efficiencies to be gained, let me say that. Are there any uh, you know concerns that you have? I mean, look, looking forward, I mean, you're you're in the business of uh, being a uh, a realistic os- optimist of, of of sorts, right? I mean, you have to you have to gauge your risk profile with uh, with a level of conviction and a belief that in ideas that will uh, that will ultimately come come to financial fruition as sure. uh, as well as have impact but uh, you know what what are what are some of the concerns that you have uh, you know with you know with you know companies that are uh, with, with with startups in in the space and and with with the evolution of uh, in, you know industrial IOT overall I think the biggest concern the biggest thing I keep in mind is that um, entrepreneurs really need to understand that these businesses they're going to try and sell into don't operate the play the playbook that works in enterprise software uh, that companies make a rational business decision that's still true um, but the the priority that they place on things like safety uh, over novelty uh, is hard sometimes for certain entrepreneurs to get so that it, it really stretches this evaluation cycle out. I think the entrepreneur would say the sales cycle, but really what it stretches out is, look, I need to make sure that this isn't going to result in something my company will deeply regret and be responsible for. Um, and so it requires a very conservative approach to analyzing what it does, how it works, how could it be deployed, how does it operate, how to... Sometimes, how complex is it, right? Sometimes I don't have a staff or I don't want to build an organization that has all the skills to operate something. I'd rather outsource this than buy it as a service. Um, and so it's, I think the concern is that it's, uh, the enterprise playbook is not the industrial internet playbook all the time. Some, some of the plays are work and some of them are traps. And so having people who have grown up in that world or at least have access to a peer group that understands how to succeed in that world is important. So you need to have the right expectations. You can't run too fast. The other thing is you need the investor group needs to be very patient. So if you expect that this is a hot company that's going to exit in two years as an aqua hire, um, that might happen, but I don't think that's an investment strategy. You, know, you really have to build a company that market discovery and channel discovery uh, is super important. 
and I think that's the other thing I look for is uh, people who understand that one of their most important early uh, focuses, this would be the CEO, is they have to figure out what's the laundry list of qualification questions I can ask my customer uh, so that I, in the end, I don't waste my time with people that just aren't going to become a sale for me. And uh, so my, I think my most successful investments have pretty elaborate ways of qualifying the customer so they can eventually say, no, no, thank you. Uh, you're not really the right, you're not the right maturity for us yet. You, you either don't have budget or you, you're not serious about this or you haven't tried and failed or, you know, there's just a, a plethora of different lessons that people have learned, arrows in their back. Um, and, and it's some combination of that realism plus that experience. Uh, and I guess the final thing I'd say is somebody with domain expertise is, uh, is pretty important. So, not always present in Silicon Valley companies, <laughs> right? Well, particularly particularly in the industrial uh, industrial world, yeah. where yeah. a lot of the companies just aren't aren't geographically located nearby. So right, simply, right. Yeah. If you go over to the bar at uh, the the Rosewood across the street from me on yeah. Thursday night, when it's absolutely packed with VCs and people that want to meet VCs, and you yell, "How many people have ever been in a factory before?" <laughs> Uh, you know, if, if they can hear you, they're not going to raise their hands because hardly anybody has. How many people have ever, you know, seen somebody make something physical uh, rather than at a keyboard? It, it's just not in this part of the world. It's it's we haven't got the you know old fart leaves a company and starts a small company to address a problem they're very familiar with. And that cycle hasn't completed very often. Right. It, it is starting to, uh, where you get some serial entrepreneurs. But until it does, you get people with some, you know, intuition of what worked last time when they were successful in an adjacent domain. And often those lessons are pretty good, rules of thumb, and you just have to know when not to follow. Yeah, no, that's those are those are great insights, and I think it's um, I mean it's it's an important distinction and uh, really fundamental to the uh, you know the ability for investors to, uh, to you know to look at look at the opportunities in the appropriate lens, and um, you know to really do appreciate your your perspective. I think it's you've got a, a unique uh, uh, unique combination of insights and and operational perspective too that's uh it's really refreshing to hear so my my, um, my partner marianne and i like to joke that over the last five years we've received our our phd or maybe our postdoc in industrial software uh, world because it's been quite an eye-opener yeah well it's uh and it's it's one of the one of the reasons why you know momentum partners is very very focused in the in this space I bet. we, we yeah, see absolutely. a lot of a lot of opportunities so well I, I i do like to wind up the uh you know every podcast with a question or about a resource or a recommendation for a resource that i would uh just ask if you know anything that you would is are, are there any books or resources you could share for the uh, for the listeners that uh, would be something that you'd recommend to a friend. Uh, yes, uh, I would. I, I must confess I didn't scan your podcast list, so somebody else may have recommended this book. But uh, I really like uh, a business book about AI for, for enterprise called Prediction Machines. 
Uh, oh, you, you probably read about it. I, I, a, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I think I know. I think I've heard of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the authors are A.J. Agrawal and Avi Goldfarb. And it's written. It doesn't really it's written as if you have no expertise in A.I. Um, and I've introduced it to people who have a product management responsibility. Um, you know, how do I, I, I know how to be a product manager for the current set of software that I'm responsible for, but how do I, you know, how do I be a datapreneur? I've got access to data about systems and machines. When should I use AI uh, to make something better? And there's a system in this book, it eventually gets to it near the end, uh, they even make an analogy. So they have something that they call the AI canvas, which is an allusion to the startup canvas, um, helping people decompose um, the series of decisions that get made in enterprises. And I think they make the analogy that every decision is effectively a prediction. And some predictions are commodities and some are valuable because they're difficult to do. And they, they kind of guide you to... Um, prioritize, you know, pick a prediction that's doable but hard is kind of the, the, the watchword there. Uh, because that, if you could be more productive there, that would, you know, pay off a lot. If it was a commodity, maybe that's, you're not going to get much leverage out of it. And uh, I've seen a couple of my companies use this analogy to think through the way that they explain the value of their products to their customers. And so basically they're saying there's a series of important predictions, either about failure or in Mana's case, you know, some big monetary decision that has to be made. It's really a series of predictions. But here's how you take a goal. Like I have an economic outcome I want to achieve. How do you back up from that to understand the decisions that need to be made in order to achieve that goal? And then how do you break down some of those decisions and use machine learning or other techniques um, to uh, usually semi-automate, in some cases fully automate, the string of some of the predictions that lead up to this economic outcome. You know, how do I make the way I currently achieve this outcome better um, at a crude level? And wow. I, I really enjoyed the book. Now that sounds uh, super relevant for, I mean, almost you know, not not just not just business and not just people in technology, but uh, life life overall. Being able to apply that that sort of uh, filter and and uh, and perspective. It's it's one of the few books I've seen that instead of just saying AI is wonderful, you ought to learn about it and figure out how to use it. It actually gives you some practical ways to think about the problems that you might apply AI to and help you sort which ones are probably better to prioritize than others. That's why I found very useful. Great. Well, uh, Mike, I appreciate all of your insights. It's been, uh, it's been it's super helpful. And I know we, uh, it, it, it took us, it took us a little while to, you know, get our, uh, get both of us on the, on the, on, uh, on the line together with a couple of technical hiccups along the way. But, um, it's yeah, yeah. been, well, it's been absolutely fascinating. And, uh, again, you know, we've been, we've been speaking with, with Mike Dolbeck, who's executive managing director at GE Ventures. Uh, this is Ed McGuire, uh, the insights partner here at Momenta 
with a, another episode of our Edge podcast. And, and, and Mike, I want to thank you once again for, uh, for taking the time. Well, thank you, Ed. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. It was great. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.